Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. This sermon kicks off our fall sermon series on hospitality. You are listening to It Is Not Good to Be Alone by Reverend Peter Yonker. As Christy mentioned earlier, and as you've undoubtedly discerned, we're beginning this fall on a sermon series that will cover the subject of hospitality, that ancient Christian practice. And to start our journey, thinking about hospitality together, we turn to Genesis chapter 2, on page 4 of your pew Bibles. Genesis chapter 2, I will read verse 8 through verse 25 of Genesis 2. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there was a tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And here's my my text, the focus of my message today. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds, and, and all the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and yet they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. In his new book, The Second Mountain, David Brooks tells two contrasting stories about community. The first of these stories about community happens a fair long time ago, in the 1950s. It takes place in Greenwich, in New York City. And on an early morning in the 1950s, Jane Jacobs was up in her third floor apartment. and She was looking out over the street when she noticed a commotion below. An older man was trying to lead a younger woman somewhere. And she was resisting him. And 
The more he pulled at her, the more she resisted until it became quite intense between them. So Ms. Jacobs was looking out over this and she began to be quite concerned. She wondered, am I watching a kidnapping? And she was just about to leave her window and go down to the street when she noticed that other neighbors from the neighborhood were coming out of their homes and moving towards the situation. So the butcher and his wife, even though the shop wasn't open yet, came out of their house to see what was going on. And the locksmith from across the road, he came out too to see what the commotion was all about. And down the road, there was a guy setting up a fruit stand. As soon as he saw the pushing and pulling, he came towards the situation. It was a little picture she saw from her window of the community moving towards one another to support one another, and it diffused the situation. Fast forward to just a couple years ago. Now we're in Southern California in the suburbs of one of the beautiful cities down there. It's a beautiful suburban neighborhood with nice homes and lush gardens and everything is manicured. Into that neighborhood have just moved a young couple. They've moved from Israel. They have a four-year-old boy. And one weekend, where the husband is on away on business, the wife is going to bed, and before she goes to bed, she does what many mothers do, checks on her child. But when she opens the bedroom door and looks, the boy is not in bed. And she's naturally freaked out. She begins to look all over the house. Where's my child? Where's my child? She churches the house from top to bottom. She cannot find her four-year-old boy, and now she's really worried. She goes out into her yard and looks around, starts calling out the boy's name. Still nothing. She starts going down the streets of this beautiful community, and she's calling out the boy's name, and now she's no, so desperate, she's saying, help me, help me, I can't find my boy, I can't find my boy. Nobody comes out of their house. A couple lights go on, that's it. Still full of panic, she runs back to her house, does another search, and she finds her child in the bed in the basement family room where he'd fallen asleep under a blanket. The next day she goes out and one neighbor asks her, I thought I heard some noises last night. Is everything okay? These two stories are not just isolated stories. I think for most of us who have been alive for a while in this culture, these two stories represent tell the story of a real change in our society. A change from closeness and neighborliness to suspicion, division, the erosion of trust, and ultimately, the result of all those things, loneliness. We live in a lonely world. Not only do those two stories tell the tale of a kind of decay in our society from civility to loneliness, they also tell a story that is in exact opposition from the way God intends things to be. That's what we saw in Genesis 2 that I read. Loneliness is not God's intention for people. Isolation and individuality is not God's intention for people. It's verse 18 of our passage. God himself says it. It is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for a woman to be alone. It's not good for any of us to be alone. We are intended for community, loving, caring community. Not only does God say this in verse 18, he says it with emphasis. 
Maybe you those of you who know the story of the creation story so far, if you know how things progress from Genesis 1 to this point in Genesis 2, you know that one of the key words, one of the most important words in that part of the Bible is the word good, right? After God creates everything, he calls it good. So the word appears over and over again. The sky and the land, good. The mountains and the trees, good. The animals and the birds, good. Everything's good, 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 good. But now, all of a sudden, in verse 18, God looks at Adam, standing by himself, counting the animals, and he says, that's not good. If you're reading it, if you've read the whole sweep of things and you've been watching all the goods, that sentence hits you between the eyes. It stands out. It's God's emphatic way of saying, we are meant for community. We're not meant to be alone. God creates this community. He creates community for Adam by making Eve. Bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, a partner, a friend, someone who can walk beside him and share his life and share his world. And Adam is overjoyed when he sees her. Community, someone to share my life with. Someone to laugh with me in the garden when one of the animals does something goofy. Someone to listen to me when I come home at the end of the day and I have a story to tell. Someone to share my life. Community. And it all works for one glorious verse. The last verse in our passage. The one that says, Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. That's the one verse of perfect community in all of Scripture. The picture you see there is Adam and Eve standing together hand in hand, completely comfortable with each other, right? That's what the nakedness means. Two people who are utterly comfortable in each other's presence. Perfect communion between them. Perfect communion with the nature that's all around them. This beautiful garden that gives them everything they need to thrive. They're in community with that too. Perfect shalom. And perfect connection with their God with whom they walk in the cool of the day. Everything is just right for one verse. And then Genesis 3 comes, and they eat of the tree that God told them not to eat of. They sin against God. They sin against each other. And at no time at all, they're pointing fingers. They're pushing each other away. They're running away from each other. And loneliness begins. That's the dynamics of loneliness. Starts with sin. We do something to hurt the people we love. Damages the trust, makes us look at each other with a little more suspicion. We move away from each other just a little bit, and we get a little bit more lonely. There's a lot of it in the world. By every measure, you read social scientists who do studies of these things, loneliness is growing in our world, which is ironic, because never have we lived in a time where we have so many means of communication, right? We have so many ways to connect with each other. New ones are coming on your phone every single week. There's another app that's meant to help you connect in a more meaningful way. And yet, loneliness statistically is growing. I went to that seminar on millennials at Calvin University this summer. One of the clearest data points, millennials and Generation Z, the generation right under them, terribly lonely, spiking rates of loneliness. There was a survey that came out recently which said that 22% of millennials, 22%, say that they have no friends. 
Not one single person they consider a close friend. In England, there was recently a study, and they found out that there were at least 200,000 elderly adults in England. So that's, that's a lot of adults. It's like a small city. 200,000 elderly adults who had not talked to a family member or communicated in any way with a family member in over a month. A small city of loneliness. In England, the problem is so bad that they actually started a ministry of loneliness. In the English government, there is a ministry of loneliness. It was started last year to deal with this increasing social problem. While we here at LaGrave will not start a government ministry to try to deal with this social problem, but we will think about it. This affliction that we see out in the world is affliction that we feel ourselves. During this fall, we will think about how we can combat loneliness in the world and make this world a little bit more like God intends it to be. And the discipline that we'll think about is that ancient practice of hospitality. What is hospitality? Let me share with you briefly four features. We'll say a lot more about it over the fall, but today just four features of this old practice. First, hospitality is different than entertaining. All of us like to do entertaining once in a while. When you entertain, first of all, you usually invite friends, people you know very well, and your goal is to have fun. And you set out nice food, you make a nice spread, and everyone has a good time, and there's nothing wrong with that. But hospitality is different, and it's in the name. What word do you see in the word hospitality? Hospital. Hospitality is a welcome that is aimed at the other person's brokenness. It's a welcome that's aimed to restore and refresh the soul of the other person. And that doesn't mean that when you do hospitality, you don't have fun or you don't have good food or you don't have friends over, but there's always something about embracing someone in what's broken in them and trying to restore it. And it's not just your friends. Hospitality is also aimed to those on the margins. It's not entertaining, a little different. Second point. Hospitality is a deeply biblical practice. It's not some sort of marginal biblical practice that shows up in Scripture from beginning to end. We already see how it's rooted in God's will for society, right? His will for community. That's the roots of it. But it shows up in his law repeatedly. God is always saying, welcome the stranger, bring in the poor, bring in the marginal people. An example of a law which does that, Leviticus 19. And the rule about Farmers should leave the margins of their fields unharvested so that those who are poor and those who are strangers can get food from it so they can be part of society. That practice is embodied in Boaz, in the story of Ruth, if you know that story, right? Ruth and Naomi, they're broken. They're alone. Boaz welcomes them to his field, gives them the gleanings from the corners of the field, gives them a little extra grain on top, and they are restored and brought into the center of the Christian family. In the New Testament, Jesus practices and preaches hospitality, welcomes children, eats with tax collectors, tells stories like the wedding banquet. In the rest of the New Testament, interesting fact, just about every single New Testament author commands hospitality at one time or another. Paul does it. 
commands it in Romans 12, 13. Peter does it, 1 Peter 4, verse 19. John does it, 3 John 1, verse 8. And whoever wrote Hebrews, and I don't know and neither do you, also commands hospitality in the 13th chapter of that book. So it's not some sort of marginal biblical theme. It's not some sort of trendy topic. It's right there in the center of the scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Deeply biblical. Third point. Hospitality has grit. Real hospitality is not easy or convenient. Real hospitality is risky and costly. Relationships if they're going to be meaningful at all, are always a little bit inconvenient, right? Anytime you talk face-to-face with another person, it takes energy, it takes work. How much more is that true when you're dealing with somebody who is broken? If you're trying to embrace someone in their brokenness, then it becomes really risky and really gritty. Go back to that story of that woman running through the streets of that Southern California suburb. If you're the person who decides to show her hospitality, if you're willing to come out of your house and move towards that person, your heart will be pounding. Because you're moving to someone in terrible panic and distress, and you have no idea what's going on. This could be violent. This could be terrible. You could be risking life and limb. Hospitality is grit. And here's where our modern social media culture and our social media devices can get us in trouble, okay? I do not blame smartphones for making us lonely. Smartphones are just a tool. They are not the cause. I see some of you looking at me skeptically. You may disagree, but I do not blame them. They're a tool. Uh, But often we use this tool very badly. All modern communication devices, you see, are used for convenience. They're designed to make communication more convenient. And that's true of a smartphone. That's also true of an old rotary phone, right? It's meant to be more convenient. But what do you do when you make something more convenient? Sometimes you take the face-to-face out of communication and you take the grit away. One example. 25 years ago, when, say, your son was being picked up by his buddies to go to the football game, how did that pickup go 25 years ago? Usually, your buddy's friends showed up, not your buddies, your son's friends showed up, They came up to your front door, they knocked on the door, and they say, hi, Mr. Yonker, is Patrick there? And you yelled at Patrick, your friends are here. And then there was about a two-minute window where you'd talk to the kid. And you'd ask him about his life, what do you plan to do next year, how's your mom? And Patrick came and they left. And it's not much, but there was this little face-to-face interaction, just a little bit of community was sown in the ground there. That was 25 years ago. Now, how does the pickup go today? A text from the driveway, right? And it's not just the kids. If the parent picks up the kid, the parent texts from the driveway. That's just a little thing. It's so convenient. You know, you don't have to have that awkward conversation with middle-aged Mr. Yonker. (laughs) But something is lost, right? Something is lost. You take the grid out. You take the face-to-face out, and we're just a little further away from each other and a little bit lonelier. You can't have love without grit. Think about the people you love most in your life right now, the people that you lean on the most. Who are they? They're the people who've been through the grit of your life, the people who've walked with you through the valley, the people who've seen you at your tear-stained worst, 
and still loved you. Real hospitality is grit. And I'll say a little more about that later. Last, hospitality is a sign of a healthy, spiritually healthy church. A church that is hospitable is a healthy church. Here's one of my favorite quotes from my summer reading. It's from a man named Jean Vanier, who is the person who founded L'Arche. L'Arche is a community that's a worldwide community of developmentally disabled adults, Christian community. Here's what Vanier says, and he's really good on hospitality. Welcome is one of the signs that a community is alive. To invite others to live with us is a sign that we are not afraid and that we have a treasure of truth and peace to share. A community which refuses to welcome, whether through fear or weariness or insecurity, is dying spiritually. It's impossible for me not to read a quote like that and hear something like that and not start to think about my own community and my own self and start asking myself questions. Are we a hospitable church? Do we practice gritty hospitality? Now let me ask you, as we, as we think about that together, let me ask you a couple of diagnostic questions. These are questions only for members. All you visitors here, you're off the hook for these. We come to church every Sunday, and when you come to church at the grave, you'll inevitably see neighbors from the community walking around, from the Heartside District. Uh, sometimes you'll see the faces more than once. Do you now, or have you ever at any time, known the names of any of these Heartside neighbors? Second question, two-parter. In the last four months, standing in the narthex or in the NPR room for coffee, have you noticed someone standing by themselves without someone to talk to? First of all, have you noticed? And second of all, noticing, have you ever gone over and introduced yourself? My guess is these questions make you uncomfortable. They make me uncomfortable. And for many of you, the answer to those questions is yes, or sometimes yes. But I think, at least for me, those questions and this call to hospitality remind me that there's more that we can do. We can grow as a community of hospitality here in this place. And as we think about that and as we start this journey thinking about hospitality, how appropriate that we begin our journey by coming to this table. The community, the table of our Lord's hospitality. Here's where our Lord welcomes us and makes us feel welcome in the grittiest way that you can imagine. Insofar as, that there, as there's any true communion, communion in us and any true hospitality and any true love, it starts at this table and what it represents. At this table, we remind ourselves that we serve a God who never moves away from us, but is always coming after us and will not leave us alone. It starts already in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve flee from God after they sin. What does God do? He comes after them. Adam, Eve, where are you? He will not let them alone. 
It's the same story throughout the entire Old Testament, right? Israel keeps turning away from the Lord, wandering away, running away. What does the Lord do? He comes after them. He sends them prophet after prophet saying, you belong to me. I love you. You are mine. Return. He refuses to leave them alone. And we see it most clearly in Jesus, the hospitality of our Lord. A whole world was wandering and running away from him. And what does God do? He comes to us in his son, Jesus. And Jesus gets really, really close. You can look at him face to face. He gets close enough to touch you so that you can touch him. And he doesn't just come to the convenient places. He comes to the broken places of your life. Does that cost him anything? That hospitality, is it scary? Is it dangerous? Is it gritty? You bet. He gives up his life so that we can have communion with our Lord and true communion with each other. So as we seek to become a hospitable church and you seek to become a hospitable, loving person, come to this table and taste the eternal welcome of your God. Amen. Lord Jesus, here we are. Um, we're children, we're your children, and, and here we are, and we're home with you. That the table is set, you've prepared this feast at enormous cost, at the price of your blood and the, the blood of your only son. You've prepared this feast for us, and we're ready, Lord. Fill up what is broken and lonely in us, and make us people of love and welcome out there in your world. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.